Welcome to Thrive at Work, the podcast that brings trends, insights, and practical tips to help employers attract, develop, and retain great people. Here, you'll find inspiring conversations with experts in their field and companies doing amazing work to shape a future where people can thrive. and welcome to this episode of Thrive at Work. Today we are discussing well-being in the workplace, a topic widely discussed and one that we have discussed before on this podcast. But do you know how to create and implement an effective well-being strategy? How do you avoid well-being washing and create a working culture where employees truly feel that their physical and mental health is a priority? I'm really delighted to be joined today by Pip Galland, an employment lawyer at Burgess Salmon, a top 100 law firm who is also chair of mental health charity, Bath Mind. So welcome, Pip. Thanks so much for joining me today. Oh, thank you, Polly. Yeah, it's really great to be here with you. Oh, thank you. Um, it's great chatting to you, actually, because you you have that employment law, the legal aspect, and also from your work with Mind, um, you've got that side of things as well. So I'm sure your work must be fascinating right now. Um, so really looking forward to delving into this and exploring a little bit more about this topic. Um, what is your view on mental health at the current time? That's a really um, interesting question and one that I've sort of been reflecting on. And I'm finding more and more that I'm advising on mental health and well-being um, as a as a such a prominent issue. Um, I think the reasons for that are twofold. Mental health and well-being, we're really seeing rising up um, the business agenda with companies incorporating it into their strategies, wanting to be seen as responsible businesses. But also mental ill health cases have risen so dramatically um, and particularly since the pandemic as well I think that has had a lot to do with it mm. um, I think if I was to focus on those two issues in turn from a business perspective I do think employers really want to stand out as those employees of choice so employees will expect their their companies to have a social conscience and be investing in their people as well as in their clients and communities um, it's a real commercial priority for businesses employees are a key operational asset and it follows that if there is a positive employee culture it's going to cultivate higher levels of performance and staff retention lower um, rates of presenteeism lower rates of sickness absence that sort of thing will follow um, st statistics mm -hmm. they will show that one in four people at any one time may be affected by mental ill health so as an employer you can't really escape having to manage mental ill health at work. Mm, absolutely. Yeah, when, when we think about COVID and the rise of mental ill health, um, I would say that as a solicitor, at least 50% of my workload at any one time will include a mental health or wellbeing aspect. And at BathMind, we've seen a real increase in demand for mental health and community services which sort of leads me to feel like no one was really immune to the impact of the pandemic and employers are still seeing those after effects of social isolation, ill health, cost of living crisis. And I really think that that is what's continuing to, to boost the trend of mental ill health cases that we're seeing. 
Yeah, absolutely. There's so much that's come out of the uh, COVID pandemic that was not, um, you know, physical physical health related. Um, it's gone uh, far reaching, really, hasn't it? And when you talked before about um, presenteeism, so focusing well-being on the work in the workplace um, and reducing levels of presenteeism, just remind me what what you mean by presenteeism. No problem. So presenteeism is where somebody turns up for work and they perform mm. their role, but they're really not well enough to be there. And consequently, mm. that has a detrimental detrimental impact on their productivity and their their well-being in the workplace. Yes, indeed. Really, those people should be off sick. Yes, right. OK, so do you think levels of presenteeism have risen since the pandemic or in recent years? I think so. I would say that um, there are lots of people who've been affected by the pandemic who we're all just trying to do our best as we come out the other side of that. And I think mm. that means sticking with routines of of going to work when, in fact, some people may not be in the right headspace to do so. But did you say 50 percent of your your work will have some element of mental health? it yeah. related to it that's extraordinary that's huge yeah so that could cover anything from an employer wanting to put in place a, a mental health strategy um, mm. like we will talk about today or it might include long-term sickness absence um, and really mental ill health is a major cause of long-term absence from work so it's one of the more tricky areas to deal with both legally mm. and in practice so I do advise a lot on how to handle a capability process, um, occupational health referrals, reasonable adjustments, as well as litigation. Mm, yeah, absolutely. Thank you. So what do we mean by um, well-being washing? This is a really um, interesting term, actually, well-being washing. Um, so although we've seen more employers invest in well-being than ever before, it's really important for an employer to do this meaningfully and not take a tokenistic approach to well-being. Mm -hmm. And this is where the term well-being washing has been coined. So it, um, it essentially describes an employer who makes external displays of support for mental health initiatives, usually on social media, um, for example, showing their support for World Mental Health Day or Mental Health Awareness Week, whilst in reality, their internal well-being programme is perhaps somewhat lacking. Mm. So we're seeing employers being called out for tokenistic activities like one-off staff yoga or handing out cakes or badges that show their allegiance to, to mental health campaigns when really their staff are crying out for better support from their managers, a better work-life balance, fair pay, um, investment from their stakeholders in wellbeing or line manager training. So I think the, the advice that we're really giving to, to clients to avoid well-being washing is to, to look at how they would address mental health at work, look inwards to what their organisation wants to be known for and be guided by their workforce on that. Because although their social media presence is important, the culture that their clients and customers and communities see are really judged principally through the eyes of their staff. Yeah, absolutely. That's so interesting. I I just wonder if, um, you know, employers may, I mean, there's so much being talked about well-being and, and mental health at work. And no doubt, as, as you were saying before, it is most definitely an issue. There's no doubt about that. The statistics are really high. 
Um, and I just wonder if employers may be wondering what to do and so they make some effort and whether the the intention is there and, and whether they don't intend to um, have some sort of tokenistic approach, but at least they're trying something. I don't know what your view is on that. I think that is fair. I think lots of businesses don't view well-being as tokenism anymore. Mm. And there are definitely mm. some quick wins that employers can do to show their allegiance to mm. mental health or well-being campaigns. But it's it's that level of consistency that's really needed to embed that into the organization. And I think employers run the risk when they try and adopt some of these quick wins of it just being seen as tokenism if it isn't then followed through with a, a particular strategy or an activity or, or a well-being program that employees can really buy into. Yeah, absolutely. And it's interesting, I think some of these days that they're like international, I don't know, mental health day or <laughs> whatever it is, I think they can be a great starting point, can't they? But um, and by all means, celebrate it and use it as an opportunity to maybe raise awareness or educate um, and launch perhaps some initiatives or whatever it is. But um, it's got to then be followed through. And, and I think it's more basic than that. I think the whole basic culture of an organisation um, needs to be one of safety and trust where somebody can, you know, open up or have a conversation with somebody if they're not feeling great or if they're struggling or if they need some support yeah absolutely absolutely it's incredibly important for that to happen mm. not just to look after the welfare of your staff because there are of course legal obligations that underpin an employer's role they have to create a safe place of work for employees and that includes managing their physical health and their their psychiatric health as well mm. um but it also makes commercial sense. Happier workforces are more productive. Employees Absolutely. want to stay. Fewer sickness, absence cases, etc. It, it does follow that a happy place of work generates mm. productivity. Mm. Absolutely, and it is so, so commercial. I, I think you were saying earlier about it being such a competitive market right now, and employers really should be trying to place themselves as an employer of choice because otherwise they are going to be struggling to attract. Um, great candidates and retain their staff um, so there is definitely and that's expensive that's very costly if you lose people or if you um, can't fill a vacancy that's enormously expensive to a business so there are commercial aspects to it as well absolutely yeah definitely and certain sectors are really struggling to recruit following the pandemic you know particularly mm. social care there's a real demand for for staff and they they can't get them through the door quick enough yeah absolutely so you were just starting to talk about legal responsibilities of a UK employer in this area. Can you talk to us more about that? Yes, yeah, so I think um, I think employees are a lot more alive to their rights when it comes to employment law than than ever before. Hmm. And I guess the um, the legal responsibilities of an employer can be broken down into sort of four key areas when we're thinking about mental health and well-being. You've got common law duties. So there's a, a general common law duty, as I mentioned, take reasonable steps to ensure somebody's safety at work. And that includes protecting them from risk of injury or psychiatric injury or mental ill health. Then you've got contractual terms. Um, so employers are, are bound by an implied contractual duty not to act in a way that undermines the employment relationship. So that that trust and confidence that exists between the, the parties. Mm -hmm. um, 
And if that's breached by the employer or they fail to take appropriate steps to protect an employee's mental well-being at work, employees may resign and bring claims of breach of contract. And if successful, that could see them awarded damages for losses. So employees with more than two years service, they've got a statutory right to bring a claim of constructive unfair dismissal. Compensation for that can be pretty expensive. I think the rates now are £107,707 or one year's gross pay, the nice easy bit, whichever is lower. (laughs) (laughs) Then you've got health and safety legislation. There are loads of health and safety statutes and regulations that apply at work. Um, And that legislation is largely policed by the health and safety executive. This Mm -hmm. is where employers have got to think about risk assessments and creating a suitable workspace for staff. And that can be quite problematic for people who are working at home or working in a way that's hybrid. And then you've got the, the big ticket items like discrimination legislation. And this is where we're we're kind of looking at the Equality Act and reasonable adjustments. Um, Mental ill health isn't considered a deemed disability under the Equality Act. It's not automatic. You have to satisfy a test. Mm -hmm. Um, And the test is whether the impairment, the mental impairment, um, has a substantial adverse effect on somebody's ability to do their normal daily activities. So that's not necessarily their job role that's just their daily activities like cooking cleaning getting dressed Mm -hmm. and what the effect of that is long term so could it last or be likely to last for 12 months or more and um i attended a a mental health first aid um refresher training the other week where the trainer said that conditions like anxiety and depression can be diagnosed by a gp as early as two weeks and that really is at odds with the test under the Equality Act as to whether it could last or be likely to last for 12 months or more and that can create a real um, dichotomy or a problem for the employer to be able to to navigate through um, so we're seeing lots of employers you know take a risk-averse approach and to, to put in place adjustments that would support mental health conditions early doors um, although the duty to put in place reasonable adjustments that will exist if it's to alleviate a disadvantage a substantial disadvantage suffered by somebody um, Mm. experiencing mental ill health who who is in fact disabled under the equality act yeah so you're saying employers are taking you're saying that they're taking a um a risk averse approach so they are um having conversations with that person and seeing where they can support and putting in place reasonable adjustments even though they're they might be well before that 12 month mark but they're yeah. doing that as a as a um to sort of mitigate against that that risk and to support their person as well presumably yeah exactly that so for an employer to be seen as supportive of course mm. they would want to put in place supportive measures for mm. staff who are struggling yeah. with mental ill health they may not mm. budget as reasonable adjustments and in fact you know we would always encourage employers not to talk to employees about their disability or um to say they're putting in place reasonable adjustments rather they're supporting somebody with their health condition and they're putting in place measures of assistance or support that help them because really the the test that I just mentioned under the Equality Act it's a legal test rather than a medical test so it's for that ultimately if that was something that ended up being litigated a tribunal would decide on it rather than the employer or um, a medical professional 
think employers just take more of a risk averse approach by putting in place adjustments or support rather early doors. Yes, yeah, absolutely. How interesting. So are you seeing many cases um, related to that come through to you at the moment? Um, quite a few cases. I would say, you know, you can bring up a raft of discrimination claims. You've got direct discrimination, indirect discrimination, harassment relating to disability and victimisation. And then you've got two additional claims that are um, can only be pleaded in a disability context, and that's failure to make reasonable adjustments and discrimination arising from disability. And mm. those are probably the two main claims that we see um, see come through. Mm. Mm. Okay, great, thanks. So um, just remind me of the differences between direct, indirect harassment and um, victimisation. Oh, what a test, Polly. So, <laughs> so direct discrimination is where somebody is treated less favourably because of their uh, disability. So here, mental ill health. Yes. Um, harassment relating to disability is any kind of act or comment or omission that's made um, that has the cause and effect of creating a hostile, degrading working environment for somebody mm. um, on mm. grounds of disability. So that could be a one-off comment about how somebody with mental ill health needs to get over it, buck, buck up their ideas, stiff up a lip. If that offends mm. somebody, that could amount to a harassment. Um, Victimisation is where a protected act occurs. So that could be a complaint of discrimination. And then that individual is subjected to a detriment as a consequence mm. of raising a complaint of discrimination or bringing a claim in the employment tribunal and then being subjected to a detriment. And then you've got indirect discrimination, which is where an employer has a, a policy a criterion or practice, something that applies equally to the workforce, but it has the effect of putting um, somebody with a protected characteristic and others at a disadvantage. That kind of claim can be defended where there is an um, objective justification. So there's a real business reason for why certain things are done. Mm. A good example of that is an employer has a sickness absence policy that applies to everybody. They apply it across the workforce. They treat everybody fairly. Um, but it means that people who have got a potential disability, who are likely to have higher levels of sickness absence, are caught by that policy quicker than others who don't share that protected characteristic and they're subsequently put at a disadvantage right. so an employer could potentially defend that claim if they had a legitimate business reason for having mm. a sickness absence policy with particular trigger points and they mm. implemented that fairly across the workforce mm. great thank you for that that's okay <laughs> um so um, in order to create, you know, to, to move away from or to avoid well-being washing, but also to create a culture that is supportive of people and also avoids the, you know, helping to avoid potential claims because people are not feeling supported or that reasonable adjustments weren't put in place. How do we, um, what should employers consider when developing a, a well-being strategy that is going to be really effect, truly effective for, for staff and employees? I would say that this can largely be distilled down into six areas. Mm -hmm. um, so the first is obtain that buy-in from your stakeholders. Building that sound business case for a wellbeing strategy is really key. 
So you might consider the reasons for doing so are, are cost saving or whether that's to reduce um, sort of lack of, of retention, sickness absence rates and pay um, to improve productivity or other efficiency gains, um, help manage and improve customer service, talent acquisition, retention, whatever that might be, having that yeah. tailored business case right from the outset can be a really great way of obtaining buy-in from key stakeholders, which is really what the business will need. It's that top-down approach. Um, there are quite a lot of wellbeing tools that can support businesses to put business case to get business cases together, where in fact they can identify the the value of that financial and social return on investment. So, you know, how okay. how much money are you going to realise off the back of that? Okay. Are they online tools? Yes, yeah, they are online tools. I can give you okay. the, the details of those to include in the in the notes. That would be amazing. Thank you. That's great. No problem. Um, and then you've got data collection. So really the next step is to identify the needs of the workforce. And mm. we always say, you know, you can't manage what you can't measure. So mm. considering what objective data you already have around absenteeism, turnover rates, exit interview data. But even more importantly than that, it's just finding out how your employees really feel and whether mm. that's through staff surveys or conversations with managers or mental health first aiders or staff, you know, preferably all of them. But I, I see lots of businesses try and tackle employee well-being without ever really understanding what their employees feel about the workplace and reaching out to them and getting their views right from the offset is a really invaluable tool for implementing the most tailored well-being strategy for an organization hmm. so would you be asking questions about how people feel on a day-to-day -day basis um at the workplace or um what they feel they need you know how could things be improved to support positive well-being for, for you at work would it, would it be those sorts of questions you'd be asking yeah I think it's a mixture of the two I think it's trying to do a bit of a pulse check to see mm. how staff are feeling what the general trends are but if you were looking at staff surveys you'd want to understand you know how people felt at work you know what do they mm. feel about their work-life balance what do they feel about the benefits that are available to support well-being what do they feel about progression? How do they feel about the senior leadership team? Your kind of your general workplace questions that really help you to measure how people are feeling at that mm. time. Brilliant. Thank you. And would you yeah. recommend taking that, um, uh, using that survey on a sort of frequent basis, like once a year or so? What would what would be your advice around how often? Yeah, I think I think that sounds sensible. I mean, ultimately, you want to do it more than once because you want to be able to to see if there are any changes in the trends that you've seen previously, any mm. other issues that are emerging, and it's mm -hmm. it's really seeing well-being as an evolving document. Ultimately, the the structure of the workforce will change as mm -hmm. time progresses, with people being promoted or moving on to other roles within the business or even leaving the business and new starters joining so you'll you'll mm -hmm. always want to get a bit of a measure of how people are feeling periodically to reflect the fact that your workforce will be usually quite changeable yes absolutely yeah and circumstances change and yeah absolutely yeah Thank exactly you. people's personal circumstances will change as well which might impact mm -hmm. on how they feel at work yes brilliant thank you great um, another area I wanted to touch on policy, um, Polly, is training your managers. 
I'd say that visible commitment from the top down is really how attitudes are changed around addressing the stigma that still exists with mental health. So not all managers feel confident to talk about mental ill health or even know how to spot those signs and symptoms. Mm. Being able to train them to hold well-being conversations or offer guidance on how those conversations sort of should be managed can be really important. I think that's really important yeah absolutely key really. Well I'm sure you would have seen this as well that you know poor line management is often a really common reason for employee departures Um, and it's really down to the line manager to check in with their staff and they play a really Mm. significant role in that person's employee experience. Yeah it's so important isn't it and the line manager is very often somebody's key um, liaison really contact between the organization and and the team and um, yeah it can have a huge impact. I was just reading recently actually that the CIPD has recently released a new report which actually shows the findings show a direct link between poor management and uh, negative mental health and productivity and job satisfaction which is no surprise but it's just interesting that they've got that that um direct information now I think that's just so training managers is absolutely key yeah I agree absolutely and I mean that rings true with statistics that I've heard as well you know top three causes for mental ill health or work at work are workload being too overbearing the relationship with your manager and the relationship with your colleagues so it, you know and manager's role is often directly linked with those three issues um, mm. so you can see how that would how that would arise one thing managers don't always know is what support offerings the company has so can they really talk to the company benefits and well-being measures that already exist um, outside of their management chain so what else the company has on offer Ultimately, mm. employers want to make mental health support accessible to staff. So, you know, do they know the details of an employee assistance program? If they have private healthcare benefits, do employees know how to access them? Do employees know about occupational health referrals and how beneficial they can be? The manager is the conduit into these different areas across the workforce. So it's not just about training them on how to handle the conversations appropriately, although, of course, that's helpful, but for them to be signposting employees to other measures at work that might help them can be really key. Mm. Yeah, so important. Thank you for that. What do you think about HR's role in all of this? Because in, I've observed that HR, the role of HR has obviously changed hugely over the last um However many years. Um, I mean, I've been working in HR for over 20 years and um, and obviously since the pandemic, things have um, changed hugely as well. But mental health is becoming more of a conversation, which is a good thing. But I think that sometimes that um, people come to HR for a lot of these things. And I wonder if um, HR needs extra training as well sometimes. What's your view on what's your view on that, Pip? I do feel for some of my HR colleagues because I can see that the scope of their role is just ever changing. They're not just there to provide advice on policy or to take legal advice when needed, but also to be that counsellor, to be that well-being guru. Mm. And I think um, I think it's a shared responsibility across the business. And actually, if you get buy in from your business stakeholders and they're the ones 
who are really having those honest and open conversations about well-being it does create you know much more of a holistic culture where mental health isn't just centered through HR HR are a key function within any business but I think the responsibility is shared and you know a culture doesn't exist through the HR department it exists through all the departments in an organization yes thank you great I think you were um that's excellent I think you were going through your six um topics of uh, yeah yes (laughs) we're missing three of them I know we've got to uh so number five so I think we started to talk about this which was the the looking at the internal comms so mm-hmm. appreciating it doesn't just get channeled through HR employees are really looking in my view for those kind of consistent honest open conversations about how their employers view and manage well-being mm-hmm. and what options are available to people who are struggling with their mental health so it's the one-to-one check-ins with colleagues it's making well-being a a standing agenda item or referring to well-being as a matter of course and the more employees see that the more they will um, see the experience of well-being as being a a strategic priority and then I just wanted to close by mentioning about monitoring this engagement and success and you you picked that up earlier when you were talking about how often would you want to do surveys to kind of monitor the data that you're getting but once you've got your well-being plan it's about being really realistic about the goals and the time frame for implementation so if you want to avoid accusations of well-being washing don't try and do too much too soon mm. seek that feedback on how effective the start of your strategy has been look at the data that you've gathered are there things you need to change what did you do well um, if you didn't do a particular thing well, you know, how can you adapt that and put in place something that really works for the workforce? Yeah, I think that's really a key point. I think uh, communication's got to be back to the, 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 the teams who are the actual employees in the organisation is absolutely key because they're the ones experiencing life on a day-to-day basis at that organisation. And also, I think just launching days or um, having special events for for various things um, is a great starting point but it might not be what they want necessarily or you know there could be other things there could be other quick wins that the organization could be looking at that could be so much more appreciated and beneficial on a day-to-day basis rather than just having a sort of special one-off event um yeah there's certainly it's a huge topic isn't it there's so much that can be talked about and discussed and um, I think having a strategy to encompass all of these different things is uh, really key, really. But I think the communication going backwards and forwards to the from the decision makers to the employees and back again is really key so that everyone's aligned, really, so that what you're doing as an organisation is actually beneficial and valued by the people, which is going to lift morale and, and well-being generally, I, I would have thought. Yeah, I think that's so true. I think um, it can look quite high level, the the stages that I've gone through. But the the reason why is there's not a tick box exercise for well-being. It's not a case of if you hold um, a a campaign or a fundraising event in support of World Mental Health Day, your staff are suddenly going to feel like their well-being is protected at work. It's it's going to depend on the, the nature of the workforce, the jobs people are doing 
the personalities of the people that are managing things from a senior leadership team. So there isn't a tick box exercise that you can go through to have an effective well-being strategy. It really has to be tailored to the business itself, the culture the business has and what they want to create and, and really responding to the needs of the staff. Yeah, brilliant. Thank you. I think it's really hard. I think the, the six points you've been through, um, I think that is a really, really great place to sort of begin to work your way through. It's not a tick, tick box exercise, like you say, but there are places you can start. And um, do you think generally just talking about it more helps as well? Because that raises awareness generally yeah. and maybe opens things up a bit more to to a culture where people it's a bit more normal to talk about how you're feeling or how you're doing or um, you know what support may actually help you on any particular day or week or month yeah <laughs> um, absolutely well yeah. I think that's really true it's about addressing the stigma that exists still around mental ill health and normalising conversations about how we feel. I mean, ultimately, when we come to work, we bring our whole selves to work. We don't leave yeah. our families behind, our problems behind, our health behind. Yeah. It comes with us. And mm. you can't distinguish between work and home life when it comes mm. to your general well-being. You take it with you. And it's about recognising that employees do bring their whole selves to work and they should be encouraged to do so. And the more yeah. you talk about how people are feeling, and I do see it more post-pandemic, I do see employers talking about that a lot more because we've all had a shared experience, which perhaps didn't mm. exist before. Mm. Um, and the more we can normalise those conversations, the more you can really embed mm. well-being into an organisation and people see it as part of their their normal you know, daily experience of coming into work. Yeah, which is great, isn't it? That's so, that's a huge change. Um, I wonder if it's um, sort of keeping ongoing really as well, because there are some elements of the pandemic, um, you know, like it's, it's been a huge catalyst for change in terms of um, hybrid working and remote working. But alongside that, I think comes, um, if you're not, if you don't carefully manage it, there can be a sense of isolation or a sense of being disconnected from your colleagues um, or and you might lose that sense of community that of course we all get from being part of a work um, setting so uh, there's an element of that that's sort of carrying on as well from the pandemic isn't it have you seen much by way of employers working hard to bring to keep connection between um, colleagues who are maybe working quite separately yeah I think I think that's right so I've seen lots of clients who have tried to reintroduce um, return to the the office whether that's mm. to help with the social connection those kind of water cooler moments where mm. having that shared learning may have been lost but also just to ensure that people are having wider connections outside of just being based at home um, has mm. been really important there's been quite a few studies around um, social isolation and the the links to to poor mental health so that responsibility of the employer when people are working remotely it, it still exists you can't think you know out of sight out of mind and those check-ins are really important and I think the other area is um is in the cost of living crisis you know we are seeing lots of employees who are adversely affected by the cost yeah. of living 
practices and the detrimental yeah. impact that that follows mm. on on their health and well-being um, mm. lots of employers put in place measures whereby they can support employees through the the cost of living crisis whether that's accessing benefits they already have available or making additional payments to staff where they can afford it um, mm. seeing a lot more of that Oh, that's interesting. Yes, the term financial well-being is is being used more and more, isn't it, in that um, in that area? And would you maybe include? Would you advise employers to maybe include an element of financial well-being in their overall well-being strategy to be considerate of that to support people where possible through this cost of living crisis? Only where they can afford it, really. Mm-hmm. I think it, you know, it'd be all very well to say to employers that they should. Um, invest more money in financial well-being Mm -hmm. obviously they you know are remunerating their staff for the services that they provide to the business where they can do it great but it's also capitalizing on what they already have available and I think that culture piece is really important and making sure that employees know what benefits are available to them utilizing them Um, I've seen some employers who haven't been able to offer financial payments as such but they have been able to look at well-being days so there's quite a Mm -hmm. lot of national companies who allow people to take time off on world mental health day or they might have a well-being week where somebody can take half a day off or a day off from work to manage their well-being whilst that is a cost to the business sometimes that can be something that's a bit more manageable for employers to accommodate it's Mm -hmm. about thinking flexibly I guess yeah yeah, that's a really nice idea. Yeah, and responding to the the needs of the staff. Staff are usually quite good at saying what they feel they need. Yes, yes, good. And you talked about earlier about um, mental health first aiders. You were talking about, um, I think you went on a refresher course. Are you seeing that more companies are um, are investing in training for various people to be trained up as mental health first aiders and is it making a difference a positive difference to the business what, what have you seen much about that I do hear of lots more employers investing in mental health first aid and I know that through my work with Bathmind we're seeing lots of corporates actually going on our mental health first aid courses um, so I think the uptake has increased quite significantly mm. and I think that's because employers are looking at mental health with the same value that they would attribute to somebody's physical health so physical first aid um the roles mm. are obviously different the role mm. of a mental health first aider is to to signpost somebody to available support and to be there to support them in times of of crisis mm. um but i do think that lots of employers are are utilizing mental health first aid services um as a way of showing their commitment to staff through wellbeing strategies, but also to give other avenues where that conversation around mental health can be can be normalised and people can gain mm-hmm. access to support that is available through their employer that they might not otherwise be alive to or aware of. Mm, yeah, that's amazing, isn't it? Okay, great. Thank you. Um, I guess I know you were talking, um, you talked a little bit earlier about the sorts of things that you're seeing coming through in your case uh, work I wondered if there was anything else in that area that you might want to mention other sorts of cases that you've seen in terms of mental health or well-being um I think it's really those 
discrimination arising from disability cases. So they're mm -hmm. otherwise known as um, Section 15 claims. Mm -hmm. And I think they can be the most tricky claims for employers to navigate. Um, to succeed with a claim like this, an employee has to show that they've been treated unfavorably because of something that's arisen in consequence of their disability. Mm. That something can be very broad and it can include disability related absence or um, something arising from tasks or duties. So where you have an employee with mental ill health who is dismissed because of high levels of sickness absence, the employer will say they've been dismissed on capability grounds for high levels of sickness. Mm. But the employee will say that dismissal constitutes unfavorable treatment and therefore discrimination because their sickness absence is something arising from their disability. There's that yeah. causal link between the two. Mm. And these are types of claims that can be defended where an employer can show the treatment. So here the dismissal is a proportionate means of achieving a legitimate aim. And that means they've got to consider prior to any dismissal, whether there are any less severe alternatives. And I think when long term sickness absence is the something arising from, it can be quite difficult for an employer to justify a sanction that's less severe than dismissal. Mm. Um, but an employer can still show it's a proportionate step of, of achieving a legitimate business aim. Mm. I think... Yeah. Advice I would give to employers if they're ever faced with dismissing somebody who's been off on long-term sickness absence is that where that individual has no prospect of returning to work, if they can demonstrate the impact that that has on the business, that can be a really helpful way of justifying the overall decision and showing that it was a proportionate step. And case law has been really helpful in identifying you're not just looking at external facing issues like your ability to meet customer demand for example if someone's off work although of course that's important um, but it's looking at the impact on the team and the mm. line manager it's, it's keeping those notes of how the business is struggling when somebody is absent um, and keeping that record as you go along so that if you do find yourself in a position where you're having to dismiss somebody for long-term sickness absence where they've been struggling with mental ill health that you can justify there's a business decision for doing so right yeah that makes sense I think right. it's probably the most tricky claim and the one that we see uh, most commonly pleaded so that would be my my top tip really great thank you and just um because I guess the whole thing is about um you know mental health we, we talked earlier about when it could be classed as a disability and what the definition and the test um, is around that. So just um, if, you, if you wouldn't mind, if you've got some examples of reasonable adjustments that people that employers could consider putting in place to support people, um, I wondered if you could go through some of those. Yeah, of course. Um, we do often get asked, is um, there a list of reasonable adjustments? And unfortunately, there isn't a, a list. Um, but there are types of adjustments that you can consider. So for cases of mental ill health, you might, considered, might consider altered breaks or work schedules. So scheduling work around uh, medical appointments or therapy appointments, um, creating a, a quiet space for somebody in the office or equ equipping them with devices that helped them to create an environment where they feel more relaxed. Mm. Um, changes in the way you supervise. 
So moving from oral instructions to written instructions, giving people permission to work from home, making changes to, to policies that allow for some, some flexibility. Um, ultimately, the, the sorts of adjustments employers will be expected to implement are going to vary depending on the nature of the, the health condition or the disability, the individual's role, what the organisation does. Um, but I would say, you know, it's more than just a phased return. Mm. Yeah, great. Thank you. <clears throat> Excellent. Thank you, Pip. We've been talking for ages. Um, <laughs> is there anything you'd like to mention that we haven't already covered? No, not, not really. I mean, it's been fab talking to you about this. And, you know, as you can tell, I could just talk all day about this sort of issue I guess I would just like people to go away thinking that mental health and well-being should be a long-term investment not least because of the the commercial benefits that this brings but also the you know the um the way you avoid legal claims it's how you support people it's how you get the best out of people and to see it as a long-term investment Great. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. Absolutely. Thank you. And if people would like to um, continue the conversation and, and uh, reach you, how can people contact you, Pip? Um, so I'm very happy for people to contact me either through uh, Bath Mind, uh, where my details are, or through the Burgess Salmon website, where my email address will be. And I'll, um, I'll share that with you separately. That's great. Thank you. Thanks so much for your time today. Uh, it's been a really excellent conversation. Thanks ever so much, Pip. Pleasure. Thank you. Bye.